Bienvenido and thank you for listening to the Word con Sazón podcast, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos. The following sermon was given at Christ Redeemer Church in Moreno Valley, California by Pastor Martin Medina. For more information about the church or the pastor, please go to our show notes below. Well, we continue to journey to the Gospel of Mark. So if you would join me in the Gospel of Mark, we are in verse we're in chapter 14, verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And we'll be reading all the way through verse 21. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. The word of the living God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God, we are about to embark on some of the heaviest words ever uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, if any of us tread this water lightly, Lord, help us to see the weight of what is in the text. It would have been better for a man to have not existed. That's a heavy reality to grasp and, con and, and concept to even fathom. But Lord, our hearts would do well to hear from you, to know what it is that the text is communicating this morning, and to seek to apply it, but apply it to our lives. But for that, Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. Lord, help me to be just a mouthpiece. Help me to not communicate any thoughts or ideas or opinions that are mine. But Lord, help me to communicate truth as it is inscribed for us in your, in your word, Lord. Help us. Help us this hour in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, you know, it's often been said that we should never bring up major news at a Thanksgiving dinner, right? Something to the effect of, what do you think about Donald Trump, right? Something to that effect where if you just bring up those political thoughts and ideas, if you bring up 
controversial concepts at a Thanksgiving dinner, you're seen as the person in the family who's always trying to strike up controversy, always trying to just have some debate with somebody, right? Here we actually have Christ in one of the most intimate dinners, far more intimate than our Thanksgiving or Christmas dinners. And He comes and He brings some of the heaviest, most sobering, solemn words of all of Scripture. And this is Christ saying this. This isn't John Calvin saying this. This isn't Martin Luther saying this. This isn't some Reformed guy saying this. This is Jesus Christ, the gentle Christ, the loving Christ. But Christ knows within His person, He is both gentle and honest. He is both loving and truthful. And these words are actually words that should have caused the disciples to grow in their faith, to grow in their dependence upon Christ. But we'll get there. We'll get there in the application. For now, what we see here is Passover has arrived. Passover is now upon them. They're celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and they're trying to figure out, where do we go, Christ? They want to kill you. If anyone sees you, they'll report it to the authorities, and they'll come and try to arrest you. Where are we going to go to have this moment of intimate fellowship together in secrecy? How are we going to be able to celebrate the Passover together? Really, this event, it's a joyous one. It's an exciting one. But in John chapter 11, it says that there was even a bounty put on the head of Christ. So we have to realize, though there's much to celebrate here, for the disciples and for Christ, they have to do things in secret. So they ask Him, where will you go? Where will we go to celebrate this Passover feast together? And then Christ says there in verse 13 and 14, And He sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The other Gospels tell us it's actually Peter and John who go do this. And what's interesting is, Usually women were the ones to carry around the water around the cities. So maybe Christ asked a man at this point to carry a, a water jar so that when his disciples would see him, they wouldn't have to find the man in the crowd. They would just think, there he is, because this was a job for the women. The women were the ones who carried around the jars of water. So maybe Christ is setting this up either by divine providence or he just asked this man to do this and had a conversation prior to. We don't know. But either way... What does it matter? That's what I always get hung up with people. Whether things happen by natural occurrence or they happen supernaturally, either way, it's the Lord's doing. Either Christ set this up and had this all arranged prior to, or He just happened to use His divine supernatural ability to orchestrate all this. But either way, that's the life of the Christian. Sometimes things happen supernaturally. It's an intervening from the God. Other times, just in the course of life, the very normal physical elements of life, things happen, but yet it's still from the hand of the Lord. So that's what's going on. And then the famous upper room here in verse 15. And He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. This upper room is a room that's always been captured by that scene, right? With Christ and the disciples, usually a very a Eastern or a Western European looking Christ. I never understand those, those images, but the fact is that's always been one of the most key moments of all the scripture. The upper room, the last supper, as it's been commonly called. That's where that picture is based out of. It's out of this text. 
So if you've always wondered, why do they always have those pictures? It's from this text, the Last Supper, the Upper Room, in verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. It comes to pass perfectly, church. You see, with Christ, there are no accidents. With Christ, there are no situations where we think, well, I didn't intend for it to go this way, but I'm glad it worked out. No, with Christ, Christian, with Christ, your life is perfectly orchestrated to the very detail of a meal being prepared in an upper room. So as you look in your life, don't begin to wonder, did Christ intend for this to happen in my life? No, realize, whatever comes my way, if I'm with Christ, I can say it came from His good hand. Just beautiful, beautiful practical realities here in the text for us. But the story goes on in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. It's customary for the Passover to be eaten later in the evening after the sun goes down. Now could you just, if you would, in your mind, it helps you to really picture these moments in your mind so they're not just concepts, but no, you're seeking to live the scripture as it's read. Could you imagine them walking to this upper room? What must it have been like? Maybe Judas was being overly excited. Maybe he was trying to crack more jokes because he knew what he was about to do. Or maybe Judas is hanging around in the back, quiet, somber, not able to think. Everyone's telling him jokes and Judas kind of looks up and you know, but deep down he knows what's going on. Picture the scene. What is happening? They arrive at the upper room and they recline at the table. And that day it was customary for them to not have chairs. So they lay down on the ground. Could you just picture the scene? Maybe they're having a great time. Maybe there's laughter. Maybe there's joy in the air. But yet there's Judas. What's he going through? See, so many times we make Judas to be some robot who had no feelings and no, no concepts of his own. No, this was a real human being. The weight upon his shoulders is the sin that is at the forefront of his mind. You know what it's like when you're going through something, when you're trying to hide sin, when you're trying to keep sin away from everyone else. You're not the same person. You're actually different. You're more quiet. You try to be more secretive. You try to stay away from the crowds because you know you cannot even have peace of mind because you know all that I'm thinking about, all that I'm thinking about is that sin that I committed or that I'm about to commit. Picture the scene. They're walking up to the upper room. They're about to go to the upper room. They're celebrating in the upper room. They're breaking bread with one another. In this Eastern culture, have a meal with someone it's not like us when we just go out to eat or we invite people over to our home it's fun it's a good time we'll invite anybody over no in these days you were not invited to have a meal with someone until you had a real intimate relationship with that person and then he says these striking words he drops a major bomb on them maybe they're all having a great time and christ waits for the room the volume in the room to drop and he says those heavy words, truly, truly, I say to you. Now at that point, maybe the disciples are getting, going to get excited. What's he going to tell us? What truth is he going to tell us? Is he going to reveal more about the kingdom to us? Is he going to tell us what it's going to be like in heaven? Is he going to tell us what it's going to be like when he passes on and he sends forth his spirit? What is he going to tell us? 
at the tip of those words, the disciples have no idea what's about to come. And yet the heaviest words, in my opinion, that Christ ever shared with his disciples are here. One of you will betray me. One of you. Now remember, these disciples have been walking around with Christ the entire time. They saw Christ be threatened by the religious leaders. They knew that the religious leaders sought to kill Christ. They knew that there was others who hated Christ. But they never would have imagined that someone from the twelve would be the one to betray him. It's always those who are nearest to us, dear church. Those who know us in and out. Those who we share our lives with. It's always those who end up being the ones that betray us. Why? Well, because if someone else betrays us on the outside, we can accept that. We understand that. And it doesn't mean much to us. But when it's someone in our inner circles, when someone that we've trusted, that we've put our confidence in, when someone in our midst that we've broken bread with, when they betray us, that's when it's the heaviest. So please do not take the real emotional elements out of this church. What Christ is communicating weighs heavy on his heart. Someone that he's invested three years into. Someone who he's walked along with. Someone who he's taught. Someone who maybe he even washed his feet. Someone who he had real close moments late at night staying up talking. Someone who we prayed with is going to betray him. The heaviest realities of what goes on here. Could you imagine what it must have been like? Could you imagine being in the seat of Judas, knowing what's going on in his heart? In fact, in other Gospels, the Gospel of John, what's actually quoted here is Psalm 41, 8 and 9. I won't make you turn there, but Psalm 41, 8 and 9 is a Psalm of David. And David is saying, they are betraying me. My friends betray me. What's he talking about? He's talking about when one of his right-hand guys sided with his own son, Absalom, to commit treason against the king. For years, if you wanted to make fun of someone for being a traitor, you would use that story of King David, Absalom, and, and you would use that in a way as a Benedict Arnold or as a Judas Iscariot. And that's quoted here because of the pain that's going on. Someone within the gates... Someone within the family is going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. A friend, a brother. Now, if we can't come to understand how heavy this is, I'm sure when you are betrayed by someone that's near and dear to your heart, you'll feel the weight of it. But until then, realize what's going on is more than just a painting that you see in so many Mexican homes. What's going on is someone's dear friend and brother is betraying the Lord of glory for gold, for silver, for money, for the love of sin. But I love what happens here in verse 19. Read what it says there. They began to be sorrowful, Judas included, and said to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Now, commentators differ on this, but I hold the position that Judas was included in the group that was saying, is it I, is it I? But his words were different. While the 11 were wondering, is it me? Is it me? Judas is the one that said, surely it is not I, Lord. Now, that's just a very, very small difference in those responses. 
But see, the 11 knew, I'm capable of betraying you, Christ. I know what I'm able to do. I know my sin. I know my heart. I know my flesh. I know I'm weak. Is it I? Is it I? They began to go sorrowful, realizing, could it be me, the one who's going to betray him? I always thought it would be someone on the outside, but is it me? They're asking honest questions. Is it me? But Judas comes with his self-righteous, self-dependent, self-reliant heart, and he says, surely it is not I, Lord. Similar to Peter's cry when Peter is told, you'll deny me three times, and Peter says, never I, Lord. You see, a very important reality there. The second you begin to grow dependence on self for the Christian life, I can promise you that's when you'll fall into sin because you stopped relying on the Lord for your, for your fight against sin. You stopped relying upon Christ. You stopped having honest dealings with yourself. They're all asking one by one, every single one of them, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Because they know what resides within them, the ability to betray the Lord. And verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now people, for some reason, often think that this verse means that the second Christ was saying this, someone else was dipping the bread at the same time, and he was caught, quote-unquote, red-handed. That's not what's going on. In this culture, there was a large dish in the middle, and everyone throughout the night would be dipping bread into it, dipping bread into it. So all that Christ is saying is, if you've been dipping bread with me this entire time, you are probably, you might be one of the ones one of the ones who will betray me. All that Christ is doing here, he's letting self-reflection sit in. Now, we live in a modern culture, especially the young millennials who cannot ever look within themselves to see if there be any sin within their heart. We live in what's called a victim-based, a victim mindset reality where we do is we look at everyone else and say, it's your fault that I'm like this. It's your fault that I'm like this. My parents didn't love me when they grew up. My employer hates me. That way I can't, that's why I can't advance in my career. We look outward and point fingers outward. No. And this group Christ is saying is look inward. Examine your own hearts. In most evangelical churches, you'll find people in this text, pastors would probably say, no, it's not you guys. It's him. Don't worry, it's not you guys. No, Christ does not employ that. Christ wants every single one of them to simmer and sulk and marinate in the question of, is it I? Why? Because it's healthy, church. It's healthy to have self-examination, to look into your heart and ask yourself, is there something in my heart that is causing me to betray the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there something within me that is causing my walk with the Lord to be hindered. So that's what I'm trying to be clear about this morning. Is Christ, the masterful teacher, the strong one to get out of the seat of self-examination. Because the second they leave that, they'll just think, well, it's not me, so then go ahead, Judas, I'll just sit here and enjoy my bread. How often do we think that in the church? Well, I'm not going through this sin. I'm not dealing with this, so it must not be me. No, if in the church we all had an attitude where we first looked at self and examined our own hearts first, we would actually be a more unified church. We'd be a more close-knit church. Our hearts would be beginning to be bonded together with the bonds of peace. 
knitted together in love. Why? Because we'd all be looking to self and encouraging one another, praying for one another. Oh, I pray we never become a church that points fingers outward and points at everyone else and says, it's your fault. You don't do this. You're not this enough for me. No, but that we would have real self-examination. Yes, we're new creatures. Yes, we have been regenerated. Yes, we no longer are under the bondage of sin. But the fact remains, it is healthy for Christians to remain in the seat of self-examination. Why? What's the difference here? The 11 should have sought to be clinging to Christ more. Right? Because 9 times out of 10, when you look in your own heart, you'll find sin. You'll find idols. You'll find things that cause you to not want to read your Bible. Not want, not, not, without, that will steer you away from praying. Nine times out of ten, when you look in and you have real honest dealings, you're not impressed with what, with what goes on in there. So what will you do? You'll run to Christ. You'll flee to Christ. You'll cling to Christ. You'll realize who I am. I need Christ. But if you look within and you say, I'm pretty good then you'll be like Judas and say, it's not I, Lord. It's not I. And then what ends up happening? We know the story. It ends up being Judas. Because he's the one who did not cling to the Lord. No, he clinged to self-reliance. So that's all I'm asking this morning is we must realize that sitting in the seat of self-examination is a healthy exercise, church. We'll first look within before we point the finger outward. In verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Again, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What's going to be accomplished, it's what Christ has already been prepared for. It is, it's already written, right? He's already the Passover lamb. He's already the one that's going to be slain. He's already the one that's going to be nailed upon the cross. So the Son of Man is going to go. It's going to happen. Christ looks at what's ahead and he knows, I know what I'm destined for. Let it be so. But he says, woe to that man. Woe to that man. If you don't know what woe means, it means that man is going to receive judgment for what he, he has done. Now sometimes we excuse sin based on the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? Well, we think, well, Judas, he's the son of perdition. This was written for him to do. This is already laid out for him. Therefore, Judas really didn't do these things because he, Christ had to be betrayed. So Judas is playing a chess piece in God's master game of chess. No, you fail to realize the human responsibility that is here. Never use the sovereignty of God, the control of God to excuse our sin, dear church. Judas was freely choosing to do everything he did in this text. God was not bending his arm, taking him to the religious leaders. No, Judas was fulfilling the desires of his heart, dear church. Judas was literally everything Judas wanted to do. He did so freely on his own volition, on his own will. Judas was pleasing his sinful, wicked heart. At the same time, he was accomplishing his own will, and we know, accomplishing the will of the Father. So these words are real. This judgment is real. 
woe to that man. Better for him if he did not exist. That's heavy. Christ saying to one of his creations, because of what you're about to do, it would be better for you if you had never been born. Now this only makes sense if there's an afterlife. Why? Because if his life ends at his suicide, as we know Judas commits suicide in the book of Acts, it, it lays that out for us. If his life ends there, then it's not that bad. You know, 35 years, he does this horrible act, and he's gone for forever. No, this only makes sense in light of eternal torment and destruction in hell. It would be better for someone to not have been born than to live forever in torment. That's heavy. That's, that's words that are, should bring all of us to have a chilling reality and a, a, a chilling response to this. Why? Because every single one of us, church, whether you want to admit it or not, every single one of us was born headed to that eternal destruction. We we're all born headed to that wicked, terrible place called hell. But Judas rejected the Lord. If we want to have pleasure and joy in the celestial city, then we do not reject Christ. We must come to Christ. We must flee to Christ. We must embrace Christ. That's the major difference here. You have someone who's literally fulfilling the desires of his heart and the desires that he has for his sin. And that's what is leading him to do these things. And he ends up being told, it would have been better for you to not have been born. Now, I can truly say that anyone this morning, if you end up dying in your sins, it truly would have been better for you to not have been born. And that's heavy. And I say that, not as a self-righteous person, I say that as someone who also realizes if I would have ended up in hell, it would have been better for me to not have been born. Because of what awaits the sinner dying in his sins on that side of eternity, no man can speak about. No man can even pretend to know what's on the other side. We have small descriptions of what happens, the gnashing of teeth, eternal torment, the utter darkness, the isolation. But no one could ever really speak about what's on that side. So why? Why would you waste another day in your sins, not sure of what's on the, on the other side of eternity, than to flee to Christ even this second, this hour? Why would you risk your soul in this momentary life in the eternal torment that never ends? It's heavy, heavy words here. But I think we actually have a lot to learn from Judas. I think Judas can teach us a lot. And I think it begins with this. Judas was close to Christ. Judas likely attended all the Bible studies of Christ. Judas likely was at every religious service with Christ. Nowhere in the scriptures can you find that Judas was not able to preach with power when Christ was sending him out. Nowhere were you able to find that Judas could not perform miracles and cast demons out. Never in the life of Judas, so long as he was with Christ, was he able, not able to do all that the other disciples were able to do. On resume, on paper, Judas was a perfect, spotless disciple. He did all the miracles. 
He preached perfectly. Never once do you see anyone saying, we all were successful, but man, Judas was surely struggling out there with us. When they were sent out two by two, you have no record of Judas struggling to go out. So what I'm saying is, if on the outside, you have all the markings of a Christian, you go to church, you walk with Christ, you read your Bible, you pray, you're even able to share from the pulpit, whatever it is, if on the outside you live a life that assembles Christianity, that looks like Christianity, but deep down within your heart, you know the sin that remains. You know the desires of your heart are still not for Christ. That we have much to learn from Judas, dear church. On paper, Judas is spotless. On paper, no one would be able to look at Judas and think, there's something fishy about that guy. I don't trust that guy. No, on paper, he would have been in the 12, and you have not been able to pick him apart from the line. Because on paper, Judas did all that was required of him. And yet, deep within the heart of Judas was a love for sin that was greater than the love of Christ. It was a desire for sin more than a desire for Christ. Now, perhaps Judas just started taking you know, a dollar out of the offering. Perhaps Judas just snuck an extra meal for himself when he'd go to the market. Perhaps Judas then started taking 20 out of the offering. That's the way sin is, church, is what I'm trying to say. You flirt with sin this much, and by the end of it, you're selling the Lord of glory for silver. Look at, look at your life and see the moments when you've fallen into sin, and you'll realize, man, if I could trace my end sin back to the beginning, it started with just a small little, a small little sin, and that grew and grew and grew, and I never thought I'd be capable of ending up at the end of what I did. I don't think that Judas, starting out the ministry with Christ, thought one day I'll sell that man for pieces of silver. No, I'm sure in his heart, as he became more comfortable with sin, as he started loving sin more, as he started being able to get away with sin, he came to the point where he thought, I can really feed my flesh here. We have so much to learn from Judas, dear church. Think about this. Judas saw Christ raise men from the dead. Judas saw Christ walk on water. Judas saw Christ make lame men walk. Judas beheld the Lord of glory in action. And you know what? On that side of judgment, all that Christ did before his eyes, even that will be held against his head. As he stands before the Father, the Father will tell Judas, you saw my son do all these things right before your eyes. And you still spurned him. You still rejected him. Now I have bad news for you this morning. By you hearing this sermon, if you're outside of Christ and you do not turn to him, this sermon one day will be replayed for you. When you stand before the Father and it'll be said, you heard the mercy and the grace that was offered in the person of Jesus Christ. You heard what Judas was like. You heard what eternal hell was like. And yet you chose to reject that. See, what happens is the more light that you're exposed to, the more gospel truth that you're exposed to, the more word you're exposed to, if you reject that, even that increases your condemnation for you. That's heavy. 
That's a, a, a reality that you just think, how will I hear these very words? I shudder thinking that some of my own family members might hear my voice as they stand before the Father being played for them, saying, that was an opportunity that you rejected the Lord. Could you imagine being a child and having parents who loved you, parents who cared for you, parents who communicated the gospel to you, and on the day of judgment, if you are without Christ, you'll hear your parents' voice in heaven as a sign and saying, you had parents who loved you and pointed you to Christ. I don't think that Judas's parents would have ever thought that their child would have grown up to be like this. And yet somehow it would have been better for him to not have been born. Dear church, can we see, can we see what the weight of sin does in a person's life? Can you be honest with yourself and see the decay, the mold, the deteriorating realities of sin? When we flirt with sin, when we engage and embrace sin, it'll literally lead to destruction. It'll literally lead to you rejecting the Son of God. Now you might think, if I was Judas, I would never do that. That's the exact wrong mindset that you should be having. The fact remains is all of us in this room, if left to our natural state, if we were not blessed by God in having been given salvation, all of us in this room are Judas, dear church. We're all of those who choose sin over Christ. But praise be to God, dear church, that Christ is not Judas. Christ is faithful. Christ keeps us. Christ loves us. Everything that Judas was, he betrayed his own. He sold his own. He forsook his own. Christ never betrays his own. Christ is always faithful to his people. Christ will never render you and sell you off as if you're a, a bill of goods. You see, Christ, the gospel-centered reality to this is Christ is not Judas. Judas was an infidel. Christ is so faithful, church. So as you begin to meditate on this reality, yet you must realize, man, if left to my natural state, I'm just like Judas. But praise be to God that Christ was offered up for my sins. And praise be to God that the Father gave me faith that I can trust in Christ. And praise be to God that Christ now holds me and keeps me and none will snatch me out of his hand. That's the beauty of Christianity. You might look at Christians and think, well, they just think that they're better than everybody else. They just think that they're more holier than everybody else. No, Christians... Christians have one thing that they confess. Praise be to God, for He saved me from my sins. Praise be to God that He keeps me, that He holds me. See, that's the life of the Christian. It's utter dependence upon the grace of God daily. The life of the non-believer is utter dependence on self and fulfilling the desires of the flesh. I just would pray that we would truly search our hearts this morning. Christ, the master teacher, has people before him asking them, search your heart. I won't reveal to you who's the one that's going to betray me. Search your heart. Ask yourself, is it I? Is it I? Christians, you've been saved. That's a done deal. You've been embraced by the Father. That's a done deal. You've been secured by the blessings of Christ. That's a done deal. 
So for you this morning, realize who you were and how you were literally the same as Judas. And that's reason to rejoice that now you can live the rest of your life realizing what you were saved from and now live a life that's honoring to him, a life that's literally rendered back to him. And anyone else realize if you're still in your sin, the joy of the gospel is this. Even this morning, you could come to him. There's nothing that needs to be done. There's no confessions that need to happen in the back room where you tell some guy all the sins you've committed. No, even this very second in your heart, if you're scared for what's ahead, if you're not sure for what awaits for you on the other side of death, the joy is you can know Christ this morning. Better yet, he can know you this morning if you would but come to him and flee to him. We have so much to learn from Judas even in this dear church. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you looked upon a people and rather than leaving them to themselves, you in your rich mercy and grace saved your people. You called them out of darkness. You called them out of their sin. And now you're calling them to live a life of godliness, a life that's rendered back to you in service. Lord, we praise you that you are the God who saves. We praise you that though in our hearts we were all like Judas, we praise you that in your rich love and mercy, with your eyes of affection, you looked out and you saved hundreds of millions of Judases, Lord. And this morning, we as a church come together and we praise you because we are redeemed sinners. We've been given new hearts. We've been given a spirit, your spirit. We've been giving... We, we are new creatures and new creations in Christ. So Lord, if anyone thinks that they could remain in their ways just like Judas was, they have Christianity backwards. No, we're saved apart from our works, but we're saved unto good works as well. So help us, Lord, to live a life that reflects that we have been redeemed by Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you save sinners just like ourselves. We ask that you would continue to do that even this morning if anyone does not know you. In Christ's name, amen. The sermon you just heard was by Pastor Martin Medina of Christ Redeemer Church in the city of Moreno Valley, California. For more information about Pastor Martin or the congregation, please go to our show notes below. And thank you for listening to The Word Con Sazon, a sermon collective of reforming Latinos.